Hello and welcome to Women Who Protect, a monthly series as part of the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We will hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and also seek their advice for women and girls who might be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, as the chief research psychologist at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field. And I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing with you the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to consider joining our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Rachel Briggs is a leading expert on security and has advised governments and multinational corporations on security, resilience, terrorism, and responses to extremism. She is the CEO and founder of The Clarity Factory, which conducts research, thought leadership, and consulting for corporate clients on corporate security and cybersecurity. She's also an associate fellow at Chatham House. Rachel was awarded an OBE, the Order of the British Empire, by Her Majesty the Queen in 2014 for services to hostage families and kidnapped victims overseas. Rachel, welcome to Women Who Protect. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. I would love to start back with understanding what it is you do as the Clarity Factory. What does the Clarity Factory do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I guess the easiest way to describe the Clarity Factory is that it's somewhere between a think tank and a consultancy. Um, We produce new ideas, we conduct research, we generate data really what we're trying to do is drive innovation and drive really the very latest best practice, both in the corporate security world and also in the cybersecurity world. Who do you you get your data from? Who are you talking to for these insights? Yeah, so we we do a lot with um, chief security officers on the corporate security side of things, and chief information security officers on the cyber side. So we're we're very actively both talking to, interviewing, and surveying leadership on both sides of that security um, house. Um, we also um, very much focus on understanding what the next generation of practitioners are, are thinking. We recently ran a survey of security professionals under the the age of thirty five. You know, I think it's really important that as our work um, changes so rapidly that we really listen much harder to to that younger generation. And then we're speaking to to folks right across both the corporate and the cybersecurity um, fields. Um, We draw in a lot of expertise. We we speak to experts such as yourself and to other ONTIC colleagues and others. Um, And we we link in really um, as as much as we need to with the policymakers and regulators and, and the investment community as well. 
So I am a researcher by my degree and my upbringing professionally. And I would love to know, how did you start the Clarity Factory? Like, how, what, what even brought you the, the motivation to do this? Yeah, so um, I also, um, I spent many years um, working in think tanks. I've also spent time working as a consultant. And what I very much wanted to do was to bring together those two, those two disciplines. You know, I have a, um, I have a very strong commitment to the idea that great ideas can change the world. You know, the power of really, really good ideas. And, um, that that also were backed up by really good data um, and that are rigorously um, researched. So I, I I hold firm to that. You, you know, any any area of life, any area of profession needs to have good ideas to be able to continually change and improve and and face the you know the increasing challenges that that we face in the world. Um, but great ideas only change the world, of course, if they are grounded in reality, if they're connected to the decision makers whose behavior you, you hope to change, and if they're action-oriented. And so um, it was important to me to set up an organization that was that was bridging that idea, that I that divide between great ideas and and great implementation. Um, and um, so I, I, you know, that's that's why I wanted to to set up and, and do this. And so clients come to me for a, a variety of different reasons. You know, they come to me because they want to make sense of the world. They come to the Clarity Factory because um, they want new data that doesn't yet exist. They they want to understand what best practice is. Um, they want us to help them to implement um, our ideas. Um, and, and they're often looking to us to help them benchmark what they're doing against their peers. I mean, as, as I'm sure you hear all the time from clients, they're constantly asked by their uh, C-suite and their boards, what are our competitors doing? Um, and so that that benchmarking thread is is really important to um, the work that we do, and we've we've developed um, very tailored uh, methodologies for that for both corporate security and cyber. So I would love to get an example. The concept of you know a, a great idea can change the world is is so powerful and so important and so true. Do you have an example of of one that you've developed? Maybe it's a you know, not necessarily changing the world yet, but but that has really changed practice for one of your clients or an insight in corporate security. Any example of of work that you know insights that you've gathered that surprised you or or that you see are changing parts of the world? Yeah, so I mean, I I would um, I would certainly point to some stuff that I've done on diversity, but but in the in the first instance, I think maybe I'd give you the example of something that I wrote. Um, back in 2006, it was a report called "The Business of Resilience: The Future of Corporate Security," and um, it, it it sort of it did exactly what the title suggests. It, it it went out, it looked at what was happening, it it looked at the limitations of what was happening at that point in time, and and tried to articulate um, a vision for how corporate security could be done differently, how it could align more effectively with the business, and how it could become much more of a proactive as opposed to a, a reactive force within within a corporation. And um, that was a set of ideas. And um, it's it's sort of created a, a an extraordinary life of its own, really. I mean, it was it was written in two thousand and six, and I think I only know about a fraction of the ways in which that has actually been used in practice. But but certainly, um, many companies have come to me over the years and said, "Would you judge me against that standard? Would you benchmark oh. me against that standard?" Yep. I have companies come to me all the time and say, "We use that. We changed what we were doing so that we could." 
um, adopt that model as opposed to what we were doing previously. And um, the thing that I find is really interesting about that is I, you know, I look back um, at that work now, and of course, some aspects of it have aged um, badly, <laughs> as, as we all have over the last 16, 17 years. But um, one of the things I was struck when I reread it recently is, and this is to the point of, of, of stuff that really works, is, is the simplicity of it. And, you know, the world's getting ever more complicated. And um, I think the simpler you can keep your ideas without dumbing them down, of course. Um, the further they can travel and the better able people are able to implement it. And that's why it's about clarity for me. It's about taking the messy old world that we all live in today and, you know, simplifying, but bringing clarity rather than sort of, um, you know, reducing something down to, to a level at which it actually stops being useful. One of the things that that I have, um, that has really impressed me about the work that you have done has been, the the um not only the clarity of the ideas but of how you communicate those ideas and especially for a corporate security audience or a c-suite audience that that sometimes research can be incredibly informative but difficult to convey and i feel like one of the things that that has been so powerful in the work that you have done has been the this succinctness and simplicity with which you have conveyed these ideas. So it's not just the idea itself, but the way in which you have been able to broadcast it and and explain it and 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 publicize it that I think has been great. Have you have you have you seen challenges in doing that? You you, you as researchers you start with with data and you get into it and things are you know can be messy and I'd love to just hear about the process of how you go from kind of that raw data to, to really deriving the insights that that you do and then how you communicate it. Yeah, that's a great question. How how do how do you it's always difficult, isn't it, to reflect on what, what you do yourself. You you see yourself less clear than anything else, I think. Um I I mean I'm I'm a really big believer in um trusting the process. And for me, the process looks um, I guess a little bit like one of those old fashioned egg timers, you know, you, you spend, or maybe the egg timer in reverse. So you, you sort of, you start by opening the funnel and you know what your initial question is and you keep that really, really simple. And you then, I then sort of open up the funnel and uh, gather as much data, as much information as I possibly can. I kind of go off in crazy directions that, seemingly may or may not have a connection to what I'm looking at, but I trust that process that, you know, you follow your nose where the data takes you. But at a certain point in time, you have to stop and then sort of go back down the funnel in the other direction and and really get sharp on on what the argument is. And, and one of the, actually one of the best bits of advice that I had many, many years ago, as I was struggling, struggling like mad to, 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 do what you've just sort of very kindly described uh, in the way I communicate is somebody said to me, just try and write what it is you're trying to say in one sentence, try and reduce the mass of the ideas that you've got into, into one sentence and then one paragraph. And actually that's what I do when I've, when I've sort of trusted the process and gathered all the information and stopped, I then force myself before I sort of start writing, before I start crafting, before I start you know, the beautiful prose, the narrative, the story, the analogies, the, you know, et cetera. I, I force myself to 
to get back to one one piece of paper and find a way of really describing what it is I think this is telling me in a very, very succinct way. And I have to do that before I then start producing, you know, tens of thousands of of, of words of, of reports. And I, I think that's, I think it's, it, I don't think I always do it successfully, but I think having that discipline um, really helps you to to write and to communicate in a way that is is clear because you're always coming back to your core argument and and it it really helps you to figure out is this bit of data relevant or not um because inevitably you end up with too much and you have to be <laughs> ruthless you have to be absolutely ruthless about what makes the cut and what doesn't make the cut so that that for me i find that very helpful i'm i'm sure for others it would be something else but um i i like to to fill my brain with as much as possible but then really cut 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 and be ruthless with that argument yeah it it and it works i just have to tell you as on that you know as from a, a consumer standpoint it really does work all, the, all that effort to to cut ruthlessly and and communicate <laughs> sim- simply i think is is so important i'd love to know what what background did do you yourself have in security that 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 you brought to this? I mean, were you a practitioner previously? Tell me, um, what have you lived in the world of security before starting Clarity Factory or alongside it? So I actually have um, quite a personal route into the security world. Um, So when I was uh, 19, when I was at university, um, and I should say I, I come from a very ordinary family. You know, there were no sort of dinners with diplomats around our kitchen table. It was, you know, very sort of normal family. And um, I suddenly found myself in the middle of a diplomatic incident. Um, oh. I got I got a phone call that my uncle, my mum's brother, had been kidnapped in Colombia. And uh, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you, I mean, obviously how scared we were and how frightened we were, but just how surprised I was because suddenly out of nowhere, I, 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 I said, he's been what, you know, he's been kidnapped. He's been by, by who and, and why. And, and so I found myself overnight, you know, in an instant, um, suddenly, uh, exposed to this, uh, weird, and it is weird, <laughs> this weird and wonderful world of security and the foreign office and diplomats and, um, you know, reporters wanting to break the story. And um, it really opened my eyes to um, what goes on in the world. Perhaps I was naive. Um, And importantly, to the way in which these big issues that we all read about in the newspapers every day, they end up mattering to an individual human being. And um, so that was that was my introduction to it really. And, and I, people respond differently to that. Um, and my response to it was to want to learn, you know, why on earth is my ordinary uncle being held for a ransom by Marxist Leninist guerrillas in, in <laughs> Colombia? I mean, go figure. Exactly. And, and so I, I set out learning and I was going to go off and do a PhD into this. And then actually, I think kind of wisely decided the academic life wasn't for me. And I, I ended up in a think tank and my first report was called the kidnapping business, which was my way of making sense of, you know, a phenomenon, which I'd grown up reading about as being politically motivated. You know, I'd read the stories of Terry Waite and Terry Anderson Mm. and that eight 1980s period where kidnapping was never out of the news to then wanting to understand why it was that it had become a business. I mean, 
quite literally a business in in some parts of the world. So that's where it all started for me. And um, what I figured out when I wrote that first report on kidnapping, and it had all sorts of wonderful recommendations of how everybody should be doing things differently. But what I realized I needed to be doing differently was that this, while this may have been a single important issue for me, actually it sat within a broader set of issues in corporations. And that's why I realized it was important for me to understand what was happening across organizations more broadly in terms of security, because duty of care and kidnap and ransom preparedness actually sat within this broader set of um, uh, responsibilities called the corporate security function. So that's that's where it started. And and it's uh, 20 odd years later, I'm still fascinated and, and I guess trying to uh, continually be part of a positive effort for innovation and change and improvement and and so on. Uh, that's a that's a remarkable story and 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 how I can't imagine what what it was like for you at that age to to just be thrown into the middle of that situation, but then to take the the approach of well, let me figure out what I can learn from this and about this and and try to really master it in a way to figure out okay what 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 can businesses do better how can we make sense of this to change the trajectory of how these happen it, it sounds like I, I, what yeah. what an incredible response to a, a you know a horrific life event I'm, and you know it's it's why to me the change piece is so important mm-hmm. it's it's absolutely non-negotiable because um you know as i started up by saying great ideas can change the world but only if you can actually put them into action and, and do something with them and so you know in anything i write whether it's a 500 word, you know, blog post or a, you know, 20,000, 30,000 word report, it it has to be focused on um, what can the reader go and do differently in the office tomorrow? That's what I'm always thinking about is what, what is it I expect somebody to do when they put this down? And I think that piece of it, especially for, for security practitioners is absolutely vital. It's one thing as sort of a a subject matter expert, uh, someone who's, who's, job and calling it is to dive deep into some of these issues but but for security officers who are in the front lines of providing that protection and safety and and security measures the <laughs> the the bottom line you know simplest reduction of what do i do with this information is 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 vital because just as you're saying no matter how powerful and important the ideas, there's a necessity to put it into, to, to do something with it. Um, we, we often talk about it in shorthand as sort of the so what. So, so what do I make of it? It may be interesting, but, but so what do I do with this information? Exactly, because um, there's, there's no shortage of stuff that needs to be done and needs to be changed. And um, it doesn't matter how great your ideas are. If, if people firstly can't understand them, and then they can't communicate them to somebody else to convince them they're important and they don't know what they they need to do with them differently it's it's an academic exercise and th- and that's not to say that i that's not to put academia down because i i'm a very very firm believer that academia is is critical because it keeps us all honest um it asks the questions that um need asking 
um, but might not otherwise be be asked. Um, and so it's a totally different discipline. You know, I, I I never describe myself as an academic because I think what academics do is incredibly important, but in a but in a different way. It, it's interesting to hear you describe that. But it sounds like um, you and I come from a similar mindset in terms of uh, being intrigued by research, but but then really wanting. But as as I describe myself, I'm I'm intrigued by research and I love conducting research, but I'm impatient. Yeah. I want to see it out there deployed, doing some good quickly. And my frustration as I was coming up through my doctoral program was um, that the the pace of academic research is often slower than practitioners need it to be. Mm. Um, and and my, I got a wonderful experience uh, in doing, um, after I, I got out of graduate school and in joining the research um, component within the U.S. Secret Service, where their job was, and our job was, to do research quickly on you know, on, on violent events to figure out what could we learn from this? What can agents glean from this new, small, fast study about how to do their jobs or one small aspect of their job better? What what nuggets can we be getting out there? Um, and, and getting back to what we talked about a moment ago, how can you communicate that not only clearly, but really give the, all right, what, do you, what should you be doing with this? How can this piece of information, this pattern of, of information help inform the job that you're on the front lines of doing. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, one of the things that um, we don't always value as much as we should do is, is the translation piece and also the organizations that work really hard to bring together the research community and the practitioner community ah, um, yes. because they both, you know, you, you know, they speak different languages, they have different priorities, they ha- are judged on different um, metrics. And um, it's amazing actually when you see that, that bringing together being done properly and effectively and, you know, with a purpose in mind. Um, and we have some great examples of that, whether it's START, um, the START program at the University of Maryland or the CREST program here in the UK at the University of Lancaster. You know, there are, there are programs that do that really well because, um, you know, not only so that policymakers make sure they ask the right questions in the right way so they can be understood by academics, but so that academics understand, oh, if I just tweaked it in this tiny way, it might have twice as much value to to policymakers without having any negative impact on its academic credential. You know, so it's those. I think that that space between um, academia and, and policy and practice is is really sacred. And um, I guess I try to inhabit it a bit. I, I don't claim that I'm my role is translation, but um, you know that's why think tanks I think have. Um, such a powerful voice is because they get really, really good at um, bridging that divide and and understanding how both sides of the table are thinking and and can therefore um, sort of perform that that translation um, service. There's a great term, and I see this translation service um, within security practitioners trying to talk with departments outside of security, whether it is to brief a C-suite on security issues or talk with human resources or an employee assistance program, for example, that oftentimes they they speak different languages. And and uh, Hank Stebman, a, a researcher within the, the violence risk assessment field in the U.S., is, has, has talked about this great term of boundary spanner. Someone who speaks different kind of languages of different sectors. So it can speak 
academician as well as practitioner can speak human resources as well as corporate security and mm-hmm. and sort of like how do you <laughs> but also just the exercise of how do you get people out of their own jargon because it yeah. can be such a habit of doing that um so so that <laughs> so that you can just communicate clearly across these different domains well you know i it's reminding me a little bit actually of one of the breakout sessions at the ontic summit um, mm-hmm. earlier this year i think it was the one that you chaired um and it was so fascinating because you'd brought together um, a HR professional, a human resources pr- professional with um, security, a security professional and a lawyer, I think. And it was, it was, it was so funny because they, they knew what they were doing, but they were saying, well, when you, you know, it's, it was almost went tomato, tomato, you know, when you say this, this is what I hear. And it was the first time that I had, because we know that those languages are different, but it was the first time that they sort of played a little game on us and said, um, you know what you just said, this is what it means to my community. And they were sort of laughing amongst themselves and we were laughing because Mm -hmm. it was, it was such a great example of how without realizing it, you've completely, uh, miscommunicated and, and they don't, you know, they, they don't get it. Um, but it's, but you know, whose fault is it? It, it, but again, it's because you need to come together and, oh, when I said that, you mean, oh, okay, right. Let me adjust my language. And, and now we can collaborate. Well, it's, it, it's interesting because I, I, this is a, <laughs> you've tapped into a pet peeve of mine within the industry, within, within the field of, of security consulting generally, because security practitioners just often default to acronyms that it, our whole point of, security is absolutely reliant on clear communication and it flies in the face of that, this use of acronyms. And and within the U.S., we see this as a a bad habit between people who may have a a background within Homeland Security and and military acronyms. And and I was (laughs) sitting in a a subject matter expert that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had convened a whole number of experts to sort of talk through some big issues that Homeland Security was facing a couple of years ago. And I was hearing from one of their staffers and, and they were talking about S4. And I was like, S4, like, mm-hmm. I, I'm steeped in this world. What does S4 mean? And I'm thinking that's not C4 and explosive. Like, what is S4? And they're like, well, it's see something, say something. And I was like, why don't you just say that phrase? Because uh. that phrase has been so, so widespread and, and people who have no no connection with the world of security know what that means and so like why are we now making it another acronym and it just that it felt like that frustration was an example of there's such great information out here and we need to share information in order to do the job of security well why are you making it more difficult so oh i th- i would <laughs> i would personally make the use of acronyms illegal <laughs> because I think it's terrible because as you say, even within your own community, you it makes you have to skip a beat to think about it. Yeah. Yes. And that's holds us back. I mean I mean, I think it's probably not even quicker to to say more <laughs> so. than see something, say something. I I don't think we even, you know, gained an extra second. Um and the phrase itself has power beyond its words. So why would you dilute it? I that was <laughs> yeah, I would, have, I would have loved to have had you in that meeting alongside me. Because... <laughs> we'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you a little about Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. 
In a world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. The center is a trusted resource for those in the security, safety, and protection communities. We share strategies and best practices, insights on current and historical trends, and lessons learned through dialogue, discourse, and alternative analysis for some of the industry's top practitioners. Define blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. I'd love to pivot for a second and and get into some of the specifics of some of the insights that you've been generating. Um, back to the Ontic Summit, we had a chance to, to hear from you a bit about current research that you're doing. And, and I believe it may be an update to the research you had done in, in 2005, 2006 um, that produced the business of resilience. But I'd love to hear just if you can share some some snippets or tidbits or in, of insights uh, within the field of security and about diversity and security teams. I'd love to dig into that a bit. Yeah, so I I um, had the pleasure of working with ASIS International, their foundation. Um, uh, they kindly sponsored a piece of research which was published um, by ASIS International earlier this year. And I had the pleasure of spending about nine months diving into the issue of diversity, equity and inclusion within corporate security. And spoiler alert, there isn't as much diversity as as there should be, um, and in a sense, you know, we perhaps didn't need a piece of research to to tell us that. But but more importantly, what I wanted to do was get under the skin of that and really understand what is it, what's happening. Um, but importantly, going back to where I started, you know, what could we actually do about it and do differently about it? And um, you know, in, in terms of the the insights at a very headline level. Um, you know, there's good news and bad news for our industry. And, you know, the, the bad news is that the research threw up, I mean, a ton of data, which I can, I can sort of, um, run through, but, um, it threw up lots of, um, examples of people reporting, um, everything from unpleasant to terrible experiences within, within the industry. Oh, um, wow. you know, from women talking about being assaulted, groped, um, inappropriate behavior, discriminatory language, um, you know, structural issues within the workplace, um, uh, you know, sort of feeling unhelpful, feeling like their career had been held back. So there was, there was certainly some bad news, um, within, within what we found. Um, but I think one of the things I was really pleasantly surprised by was the good news. And I'm an optimist, so I always seek out the, the good news. And, um, I was I interviewed 16 chief security officers and um I think without exception all of them got why security what got why diversity was important um and were trying to I think with with only perhaps a couple of exceptions were were I got the impression genuinely really trying to do something about it and with you know more or less success and more or less sort of vigor and commitment but um, I really got a sense that um, certainly amongst the leadership that I spoke to, which doesn't mean it's representative as a whole, but there was a, a recognition of the need to do better and an effort to try to do better. Um, and one of the responses that really gave me hope was we ran a survey and one of the questions we asked was, um, 
for people to tell us, you know, from strongly agree to strongly disagree, um, whether they would, you know, speak up if they saw something that, you know, wasn't right, some discriminatory behaviour or et cetera. And the vast majority of respondents said they absolutely would speak up. And now, would they in practice? I don't know. But the attitude um, of the vast majority of respondents across all groups, men, women, straight, gay, um, disabled, non-disabled, etc. All you know, the vast majority across all the groups said, "If I saw something, I would. I hope I would speak up." In other words, and I thought that was really important because, um, you know, essentially what we're talking about in terms of diversity is a change management challenge. You know, we're trying to take an industry from being from looking and sounding one way to looking and sounding different in in some ways, and you know, change happens first because. There's the firebrands who are on the front line who are fighting and shouting and, um, you know, often feel like they're sort of shouting into an empty room in those early years. Um, but, but answers like that, that say people are willing to speak up tells me that things are changing. Now, are they changing fast enough? Are they moving fast, far enough is another question. But, um, that answer to me was really important because it gave the impression of, um, an industry standing kind of somewhat shoulder to shoulder in in trying to to make a change here and and just as a as an aside you know i was reminded of this um just i just spent a couple of days um with isma um at, at one of their meetings and you know i was reminded again you know at the start of the of the session isma like osac like asas no doubt like on ticket at your annual summit you know the the point is made we have a code of conduct by being here you are signing up to behaving professionally speaking professionally and so on and so forth and so i think i think we're at somewhat of a pivot moment and the question is can we keep pivoting can we move fast enough and 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 can we uh, kind of keep the pressure on well, let's go back for one second why is diversity important within security teams what do you see so for me there's a there's a real business case here because um and that's not to say that diversity isn't the right thing to do because of course it's wrong if people are discriminated against and oh, can't get on. So let's let's take that as table stakes. It is the right thing to do. Um, I think it's the smart thing to do. I think there's a really clear and simple business case for this. Um, I, I describe it as the diversity dividend. Um, and what I mean by that is that if you look at the way the world is changing, geopolitics on fire, um, ever more complicated risk picture, ever more interconnected risk picture, fast moving, volatile, two named, but just a few sort of big picture trends. If you, if you sort of are behind me and you agree that that is what sort of largely speaking, what the world looks like. And if you also accept that what is happening within most corporations is change on steroids, you know, 40% of CEOs, 40% of CEOs say my company won't be viable in 10 years time unless I, unless it is substantially changed. And when I said that recently to, to a company that I work with, the CFO said only 40%. Um, and so if you, if you kind of look at that picture, what that says to me in really simple terms is more innovation, higher productivity, better decision-making, closer business alignment, and a whole heap of new skills, not least around technology, digital data, you know, areas where I know you guys are, are so, so exceptionally strong. And um, if you accept all of that and you've read the data on diversity, I mean, the correlation between diversity and innovation, productivity, 
better decision making, um, closer business alignment. That the relationship isn't just kind of, you know, strong. It's off the charts. And it's not to say that diversity isn't the only thing that increases innovation and drives productivity gains and so on. But the 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 stats are out. I mean, they're just extraordinary. They're they're so extraordinary. You know, gender di- gender and ethnic diversity in the top quartile um, gives a company something like sixty six percent higher. Um, you know, re- economic returns. I mean, it's not just a sort of wow, a two to five percent gain. It's 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 game changing gain, um, and so um, now, but that's why the businesses across the board are, are are interested in this, and because you know Gen Z and younger generations are quite rightly shouting loudly about this. It's it's not just important for companies across the board. It's it's especially important for security functions because they're on the front line of that world on fire, and are probably one of the departments. Um, struggling most with some of that internal churn because they traditionally haven't had high levels of technology skill set and data and digital and so on and so forth so so for me i don't see how we can not see this as part of the solution if we want to if we're all being asked to do more with less which equals higher productivity if we've got to get smarter in how we do things and how we make decisions um, diversity just has to be part of the answer here. And I want to I want to drill down on specifically the question uh, within the broader question of how do we create more diversity? How do we invite more diversity into our our security practices and, and departments? I would love specifically to get your thoughts on on how we get more women and girls into this field as one example of how we increase diversity. You know, our, the focus of of the the podcast series that we do here on women who protect within Ontic's Protective Intelligence podcast more generally is really trying to to encourage women and girls to get into the field of security, consider it as a career choice, as a job option for a while. So I'd love to get your thoughts on on what what do you see as ways that we could do that? Yeah. So I think there's I mean I first I think the first thing to say to 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 women and and uh, young women who are looking at the security industry and 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 it certainly looks more diverse than it did when I joined the industry twenty yes. odd years ago. That's 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 a given. Um, is is to um, you know to to recognise that things are changing, and we might not be quite where we'd like to be yet, but things are changing, and don't be put off, and um, to understand that they can be part of making that change. I mean, I, as a, as a young, uh, 22 year old, if I can quite remember back that far, I mean, that for me would be a really exciting challenge to, to feel like I was on the cusp of, you know, new innovations and change and that, you know, my very being there was, was going to be part of that. I mean, that's, I think, I think women should see this as an exciting challenge and that's not to, to sort of downplay some of the challenges that many women find along the way. Um, but I think sort of starting with um with that kind of thought in mind is is really important. I mean, I'm I've always been a um a, a and I'm I'm sure you too is a, a great believer in the network. And, you know, we talk a lot about the power of network in the security industry. You know, we all want to be, uh, particularly practitioners, want to be no more than one quick phone call away from the right bit of information, the crucial bit of intelligence, of course. But um, especially important for, for for women, you know. And and I see 
women's networks delivering all of the above as they do for anybody in the security industry. But I see them also delivering tremendous support. I, you know, there's a, a number of women I too turn to within the industry who help me make sense of something that's happened, reassure me um, that I'm not being unreasonable. If, you know, I'm not happy about how something has been handled, perhaps at an event, for example. Um, and, um, you know, I certainly am always trying to help other women who want to get into the industry, who want to get on up through the industry. And so the power of, of that network, I think it is, can be particularly helpful for, for women, um, even above and beyond the way it is for, for all professionals within our, our industry. Um, and I think the, the other thing I would say, and I, I don't want to sort of slip into stereotypes about, you know, how women behave in the workplace, because we're all very different. But I think one of the things that it's just like a basic truth that it's really important to remember is that it's okay to ask for what you want. And it's really important to be very clear about, I want this. And if you don't think I'm ready for that now, let's talk about what I need to do to get there and how you can help me to do that. And um, I think sometimes, and again, I don't want to stereotype, but you know, I, I know I've been, you know, sort of guilty of this uh, at times in my career is, is sort of, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm demanding something um, <laughs> right. when actually, you know, the person next to me has, has probably already done that. So um, I think just being, it's amazing what you can get when you say, this is what I want. Um, and people then know what you want. And not only do they know what you want, often they end up trying to help you um, to, to, to get there. And then I think the final thing is, is, is about connectivity and it's joining associations. It's coming to things like the Ontic Summit. It's, it's making sure that you're in the room um, as, as often as you can. And sometimes that might mean sort of funding something yourself, unfortunately, um, but it's an investment in yourself. And those kind of opportunities really help to accelerate um, accelerate your career. Yeah, it, it's that's such wonderful advice because just being there, you get to absorb what's around you at, if you're at a professional conference or association meeting, et cetera. But, but even just being there and meeting people is um, can pay amazing dividends later on. Yeah, there's always a good connection to have. And there's always, <laughs> exactly. there's always a sort of a moment of, oh, maybe you could come help me. You know, there's, there's <laughs> so many great connections that get made. <laughs> It's so true. Um, Rachel, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to cover yet that you wanted to share? Um, well, I think I, I think on the diversity piece, it would just be great to um, sort of share some of what companies are doing. And as I say, this is a, a change management challenge and um, it's not going to happen by magic. It's not mm. going to happen without us all being very intentional. And the thing I think is really important to stress for corporate security functions is that they need to start counting. Um, so many of them, when I ask them, you know, what proportion of your function are, are female or what proportion of your leadership team are female and so on. Some of them had that data, but not all of them did. Um, and so if you don't, if you don't know, you know, you can't change anything unless you know where you are now, where you want to get to, and then you're measuring yourself that you are making progress and at the right, at the right pace. So I think, you know, the first thing for companies to do is to be measuring this, um, and, and holding themselves accountable. There's all sorts of things they can be doing on recruitment, you know, whether it's making sure that their, the language in job descriptions is not sort of gendered in a way that um, makes women think, oh, this probably isn't for me, um, or that puts off other types of candidates as well. Um, 
making sure that they're looking in in a wider range of places. You know, if you keep going back to the same pools that are not diverse in the first place, you you know, surprise, surprise, you won't find many women there. Um, and so, you know, the, the companies that I think are making the biggest progress on this are those who are, uh, and it's simple, right? They're looking in more places than they used to look. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so I think, you know, on the company side of things, I'd really stress the need for data and the need to kind of count and also, you know, start doing stuff differently because unless you do things differently, you'll get the same outcomes. And I, I think that's the definition of madness, isn't it? I think someone once said. <laughs> Insanity. <laughs> exactly. It's, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> well, and it, and I think it's so important too. It, 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 as we've talked with a number of women who are in the field of security as part of this podcast series, one of the things that that I've heard time and again is that those women that we had a chance to talk to have really risen to the top of of their fields and and their areas of of practitioner work has been that they all uh, so many of them got into the field of security almost by accident. You know, we often think like, oh, well, it, we security practitioners typically come from a career in law enforcement or a military background. And that, and, and for so many of the women we've had a chance to talk with, that's not the case at all, that someone encouraged them to get into it or they, or they needed to, to get a, a part-time job during college. And the only one available was at a police department that had a 24 seven schedule that, that could fit their college class schedule. And just, they kind of fell into these or got into the, the area sideways or back or, or somehow yeah. by accident, and I think that's so important. And and we had a, a wonderful chance to talk with uh, with Kate Bright, also in in the UK, who who um, looks for and builds executive protection teams, especially for high net worth families. And more and more families are requesting women as as their bodyguards, and that she looks to. Uh, women's professional sports teams to to find women who don't necessarily know security practice, but are used to working as part of a team, communicating well with others, being nimble and agile. And and she's realized you can teach so much of of the security practice and what needs to be done. Um, so it's great examples of or, or great illustrations of exactly what you were talking about about looking in different places to to build this diversity yeah and i i was chatting recently to a chief security officer who who had taken his function from predominantly men to now 50-50 split men men women and um he you know he talked about he, i i asked him you know how did you do that and he said I stop asking i stopped asking about experience and start fo- started focusing on competences <gasps> Oh, great. And he said, once I started doing that and and stopped thinking must have 15 years in military slash law enforcement slash this bit of the FBI slash secret service, once I stopped thinking that somebody might be suited for the job purely on the basis of what their former job title had been and started focusing on, as you said, the really e- even more important stuff around communication, collaboration, teamwork, great delegation, great project management, you know, all of that stuff. He said, it suddenly became super easy and my team is stronger. Oh, what a great example and, and yeah. great strategy. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, good. Rachel, it has been such a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you today. I, I have loved your work for quite a long time. I was so wonderful for me personally to meet you at the Antic Summit earlier this year. 
um, and just a, a, a real honor to have you as a, as a guest and get to talk with you today. So thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcasts at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. Thanks for listening.